I want to thank you all for joining us today. My name is Victoria Angeni and I am the student coordinator of the Roxborough Roundtables at the Arlen Specter Center. Today I have with me Elena. Um, I'm Elena. I will be taking over for Victoria as the student director. Um, and today our host is going to be Dr. Nash presenting on the future of healthcare in the U.S. Great. Well, thanks very much. We're going to uh, go around the room and introduce everybody. Yep. Okay, so uh, please. My name is Megan. I'm a senior at Law and Society student. My name is Orlando. I'm a freshman Law and Society student. My name is Chloe. I'm a sophomore Law and Society student. My name is Alex Judd. I'm a freshman and I'm a finance major. Hey, please. I'm Sue Christopherson. I'm an economics professor in the School of Business, Canberra College. Hey, my name is Keila Kim. I'm a professor in fashion merchandising and management at the School of Business as well. My name is Joel Adler. I'm an adjunct faculty of the Doctor of Strategic Leadership Program. Great. And my name's Ashley, and I'm a third-year psychology student. Great. And I'm Evan Lane. I'm director of the All Inspector Center for Public Service. Outstanding. Well, so first of all, thank you all for coming. Do you like my Jefferson socks? That's <laughs> <laughs> a key question. Okay, excellent. So, and my Jefferson pins. So I'm totally cool with that. So um, this is a return visit for me, having been here almost more than a year ago. So really great opportunity, and uh, now we're all in one big happy family together. So uh, really, uh, how about a big round of applause for all of that? Yeah. And, and now I could say my standing joke that Jefferson had an undefeated basketball team because we didn't have one. You guys took away my best line, and uh, now it's just really wonderful. So fantastic to be a real university since I've been on the Jefferson campus for 27 years as a faculty member. So now we can finally say that I'm on the other side of this mountain. We're finally a real university. So thank you very much for that. Okay, so what I thought I'd do is uh, give you a quick uh, couple of points uh, based on the topic of where we are with health reform in our country. And in consultation with uh, uh, Evan, uh, I thought this was a good way to start, and then we could open it up for a conversation. And I appreciate the ground rules. Uh, so, whatever your politics, um, let's try to park that at the door, at least for the next hour, if possible. But I think I'd like to make sort of three points. Uh, one, uh, what's the background music that we're still faced with with the healthcare system in our country? Uh, two, what has happened since the last time I was here? And then three, as a point of discussion, what might be possible to fix the system in the future. So why don't we go in that order, and I'll be very brief. Uh, so one, background music, um, aspects of which we touched on over a year ago. Uh, well, the sad news is a couple of things. Um, uh, we spend 18% uh, of the world's largest economic engine on healthcare services. Uh, you and I are in a county right this moment uh, that uh, healthcare is the largest industry in Philadelphia County, employs almost more people than any other industry. Uh, with that investment, based on the best available evidence from around the world, uh, for that spending, we rank number 17 in the world in terms of how healthy our society is. So just from a business perspective, we're not really getting a pretty good return on our gigantic investment. That has not changed. Sadly, uh, we recognize that most of the health of a society has very little to do with a place like Jefferson Medical College or Jefferson Hospital, or for that matter, the 13 hospitals in Jefferson Health. It has all to do with what we call the social determinants of health. And the most important predictor of health in our country is poverty. And the poorer you are, the sicker you are. In fact, uh, the best predictor that I have of your lifespan is uh, not your blood pressure, uh, not your cholesterol level, uh, it's your zip code. And if I know your zip code and your credit score, I can give you a pretty accurate prediction of how long you're going to live. So none of that has changed since the last time I was here. Uh, we finally, something that is new and pretty sad, is um, of the nation's top ten cities, 
we have the greatest disparity in lifespan based on zip code. One more time. The greatest disparity in lifespan based on zip code. What does that mean? So if you are growing up in Society Hill, you're going to live to about 88. If you're growing up across the street from Temple University Hospital, you're going to live to about 68. That's the largest disparity 20 years of the nation's top 10 cities. So part one, background, it's a pretty grim situation. Uh, part two, what's happened since we were together to the Affordable Care Act? Well, a lot, uh, most of it from a health perspective has been pretty dismal. So let's just make a list and then we can come back to it and hopefully somebody's going to help me keep track. So in, in no particular order, um, the individual mandate, that is, uh, you've got to buy health insurance because the way insurance works, everybody's got to contribute. That's under assault uh, from the Republican Party. And uh, they've attacked it in any number of ways, which we could get into. But one really important thing is the individual mandate is under threat. Uh, two, um, we were able to give access to about 19, 20 million people who didn't have health insurance before. Uh, that is under attack by trying to destroy the exchanges. And we could talk more about those. And then three, most of the social programs that sort of ameliorate aspects of poverty, like contraception and supporting teen pregnancy programs and Head Start and Meals on Wheels, all of the social programs, the proposals are to radically cut virtually all of those, which would further undermine and create a greater disparity. And this is only a partial list. So that's part two. So part three, yikes, what can be done? And I'm going to be very interested to hear your thoughts because my generation, we have messed this up so bad that it's over for us. It's totally up to you. So I hope you feel this weighty responsibility on your shoulders. So looking into the future, what could realistically be done? It's a very difficult question for me to answer, quite frankly. Uh, I hope that certain governors in so-called blue states will defend the expansion in Medicaid in those states to help people who lack the means to get coverage. And I hope even other governors will come to the rescue of the exchanges in those states so folks can continue to get some kind of health insurance. And I hope, just speaking personally, that the nation will have a conversation about where we think healthcare belongs. Is it a right or is it not? If you're a citizen of the United States, should you have universal access? And I think that's a question that we have not really had a fruitful public conversation. So let me summarize. One, two, three. One, we're in a jam. And that hasn't changed since the last time I was here, maybe even worse. Uh, two, the law itself is under assault, every aspect of it, and we could get into the details if you'd like. And three, I think we have to have a conversation that the nation just has not yet had in a fruitful way, which is, in, in my humble view, what do we think about healthcare as a right of every citizen? Just to close, in the rest of the Western world, even having this conversation would be looked at as some kind of crazy, only in America issue because the rest of the Western world has universal <laughs> access, spends a lot less than we do, gets better outcomes, and are a whole heck of a lot healthier. So we have a lot to learn from our Western, largely Western allies. So I'll close with that. I have some questions regarding definitions. Definitions, okay. please, fire away. So we'll start small and get large. Okay. okay. When you say the mandate, mandate, what exactly are you talking about? Why is it necessary? Great. So mandate is a couple of flavors, but I think the core is you've got to buy health insurance. Well, why is that important? Well, the way insurance works is everybody puts something into a pot so that when you need that pot, it's available to you. It would be akin to being allowed to drive a car without car insurance. And then, oh, I just had an accident. Let me try to go and 
buy insurance to cover what just happened. It doesn't work that way. Everybody contributes to a pot, so when you need it, it's available. It's a little bit of a cross-subsidy, right? So when you're healthy, you're contributing so that if you were to become ill, you have access to these resources. The only way to do that is to mandate that everybody make some kind of contribution. So, so just to put it in, in uh, focus a little bit, in this room we have, by the way, one of our biggest showings, it's about 50 people, 60 people here. If all of us put $100 into a pot, that'd be great. Then we'd have a whole lot of money. A lot of money. And only if one of us got sick, mm -hmm. there would be enough money to cover that person. Well, theoretically, all the healthy people that's right. So putting money in. The notion of health insurance, the very core which most Americans regrettably cannot articulate, is I have to contribute money when I'm healthy to help cover folks who are not. And it's an interesting concept. Um, and for certain folks, it's a rallying cry that they're not going to do that. And for other folks, it seems like a very appropriate, equitable, core belief that you're contributing to something that you might need in the future. So if I'm not, if I refuse to buy insurance now, right, what happens to me? Well, if you refuse to, if everyone were to refuse, there'd be no pot available, and that would undermine the whole notion of what any kind of insurance is all about. Is there a penalty if I refuse to pay uh, to buy insurance? Yes, and as most folks know, it's a pretty modest penalty. It depends on your income level, but generally it's regarded as a very modest penalty. So modest that lots of folks decided to just forego it and not contribute and suffer the penalty, uh, which is regrettable, but um, I think that gets to my third point, which is a broader conversation of what's insurance all about and do we value everybody having access to care? Before we get to the philosophical issues, um, you said exchanges. What is meant right. by the exchanges? So that's a cool new thing, really, from March 2010 uh, that was uh, dreamt up by an interesting group of uh, policy folks kind of complicated, but the basic notion is that um, by geography, typically on a state-by-state -state basis, there would be this protected marketplace called an exchange, that you could get a certain type of health insurance coverage at a very modest price, and that you would get subsidized if you couldn't afford it based on your income. So say my monthly would be on a say Blue Cross Blue Shield, $800. Right. But you could get pretty decent coverage in lots of states on certain exchanges for one-tenth of that on a monthly basis, depending on your income. So the difference about what I can pay or can't pay would be made up by the government. That's correct. And so it was viewed uh, by certain folks as subsidizing the insurance companies to make sure that you had access to care. Right. Yeah. And finally, if we stop the ACA as it exists now, okay, you mean repeal the whole repeal thing? Repeal it. Uh -huh. um, will people lose their ability to get health care? Well, uh, based on the best available evidence from neutral third parties like the Office of Management and Budget and, and the National Academy of Medicine, pretty reputable folk, uh, their view is, well, probably 20 million people who had achieved access just through the exchanges and through expansion in Medicaid, most of those people would lose access to care. So that could be a catastrophe from a public health perspective and an economic perspective, just very quickly to answer your question. So if you don't have a primary care doctor or a source of ongoing care, you're going to um, likely not take your medication, likely end up in the very expensive Jefferson University Hospital emergency room uh, a couple of times. It, it would shift the cost and increase the cost at the same time. So it could be both catastrophic from a coverage perspective and really bad from an economic perspective. So putting it into real world, real, real world perspective, if I don't have coverage, and say yes. I have uh, the flu, I normally go, if I had coverage, I go to my primary care doctor, 
the visit would probably be a couple of hundred dollars, and he would prescribe some medication. It would be a lot less than that, okay. but yes. But now I don't have I don't have that couple of hundred dollars, right. right? And I don't have coverage, so I go to Jefferson ER. Right, we do you have to place I would recommend, but yes, but you have to take me. I have to take you. Yes, okay. all thirteen hospitals in Jefferson Health would have to see you. Yes. And what would be the cost of that emergency room visit? Uh, well, so just to register downtown, I could speak to is three hundred and fifty dollars. Just to sign. Just to sign your name and get registered, right? However, it gets paid, whether it's out of your pocket from a, if you're lucky enough to have insurance, but the the basic visit is over three hundred dollars. So say this person X-rays and all that, oh, it just keeps on adding up to the fact. Very quickly. Now, if I I'm then released. Yes. Say I have. Uh, they say I have uh, intestinal cancer or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Will Jefferson pay now for the chemotherapy? Well, so that's a really complicated question. Um, the short answer is um, it's not clear. If you're in an emergent situation, we are obligated to treat you. If it's a non-emergent situation, we're obligated to make an initial diagnosis and triage you. After that, that's a problem. Will people? What will happen if there's millions of people from a medical point of view? It will be a clinical disaster. Right. So, as folks know who just are well-informed citizens, in this city, there are people who don't take their insulin because they have to pay for food for their children, and they end up in our emergency room on a regular basis, as just an example of how difficult this situation is. So if they can't afford their medication, then the downstream complications are pretty dreadful. But let's remember, I mean, these are all great questions. 20% um, of a society's well-being has everything to do with what we're talking about. 80% has nothing to do with this, and is all about poverty, crime, drug abuse, diseases of despair, lack of education, and everything, every other social problem that we face. 20% is this conversation, 80% is very complicated other stuff. Um, so research has shown that poverty affects not only like the ability to handle stress, but also the way that the brain develops, which is why I found it interesting that Congress didn't pass uh, the Renew the Chip program, right. which helps. It's beneficial to like parents who can't afford for like their children's care and helps like don't go money to treatments and stuff like that. So what what is supposed to happen then, like yeah. to no. those families? So like, it's a great question. Um, without chip reauthorization. It'll be very akin to the problems we've been talking about. So the downstream effects, the later effects, will be magnified. And everyone will end up having to pay more to take care of all of the downstream problems, right? Uh, it's a really regrettable situation, very akin to what we've been chatting about. And I didn't mention anything about children, so thank you for bringing that up. It's a big, big problem. What is the argument? Against we are we stand alone for some reason in the Western world. Correct. Um, there's access to healthcare now. I've heard myth or truth. That's why I asked you the question. Well, Canada has healthcare for everyone, but you have to wait a year to get to see a doctor, or the quality of care is so low, uh, or you're treated very badly, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to America, where it's completely so uh, well, most of that is not true based on the best available evidence. Uh, you do have to wait for complex procedures and certain complex diagnostic tests. But in terms of Canada spends about two-thirds of what we spend. But on every societal measure of health and wellness, they're off the scale positive compared to us. So uh, I'm not sure where you're getting your information, but the... the I've heard the research evidence is would would argue that that's not correct, as is true for Germany, France, uh, Italy, Spain, Portugal. Uh, most of the Scandinavian countries are off the scale positive compared to us, 
and I'm not suggesting that it's an easy transference in any way, but even heterogeneous societies with different types of people have achieved better outcome at a lower price than we have. And the reasons for that are complicated, but we can get into it if you'd like. Thank you. So I was uh, thinking maybe we could back up for a moment. Sure. Um, I was kind of wondering what the state of our health care was before the Affordable Care Act. Uh, what our general, like, maybe on broader scales, what uh, we, like, looked at health care as and how it was. Yeah, great question. So um, health indicators, things like uh, Healthy People 2020, major national measures of improvement in health, pre and post ACA, it's a great question. So we do know that getting access to care, meaning having insurance coverage, does ameliorate and does improve health indicators. And there's some really sophisticated work, people like Atul Gawande and others who are in the popular press that have actually looked at this. So the principal determinant pre and post ACA that's been measured is giving access to care for 18 to 20 million people. For those folks, their health indicators have improved, which sort of makes sense because prior to that, they couldn't afford to even get examined, get appropriate medication, get some kind of preventive program. Um, so in that narrow band of those 20 million with new access, their health has improved. Societally speaking, uh, you know, we've made some great advances having nothing to do with insurance or anything, all about education, changes in diet, and related activities. So in other words, um, heart disease, mortality, and morbidity continues to decrease with or without the Affordable Care Act. So that's a great question, sophisticated question. So if we are having more people covered and we're doing better with health care because of the Act, then why is all of this opposition to the Act? Well, I see, you know, it's, a, it's vexing. It's vexing beyond belief. Uh, you know, it's a head-scratcher, literally. Here's what I mean. I, I think let's go back to, you know, my third comment, which is we just have not had a conversation about do we believe that universal coverage is a fundamental right of citizenship? I think that's the starting point. Everything sort of flows from that. Um, I think there are, you know, unfortunately, lots of elected representatives at both the state and national level for reasons that I don't understand just don't believe that that's a fundamental right of citizenship. So if you don't have that worldview, then everything else looks to be an issue of politics, return on investment, uh, and disenfranchising large numbers of people for reasons that have that are you know um, pernicious. Uh, you know, some of it is race; it's unquestionable. Some of it is about uh, class. Uh, that's a challenging issue. And uh, you know, to me, it just doesn't make sense because if, even if you don't have these ra race and class issues, just from an economic perspective, it's not, it doesn't make good sense to proceed along the lines we're doing. It's going to cost everybody in this room more money downstream than ever before. But again, the overlying issue is the system itself is broken, but it's more important to talk about you know, uh, childhood nutrition in the Philadelphia public schools and the fact that, you know, depending on who you read, 30 to 40 percent of every public school student in Philadelphia County is obese. So what does that mean? Well, when they're adults, that's going to further stress the system to practically the breaking point. All those fat children are going to be very ill adults. Well, if they don't have insurance and they're really ill, well, how are we going to make that work? And it's only going to cost more. Um, I think the other issue is, what's the trade-off? If you spend 18% of the GDP on health care, what are we not spending it on? Well, guess what? We're sitting in a fantastic university that 
needs support from all sectors, right? And if you believe, like I do, in that education is critical to the future survival of the country, and that's not an exaggeration, you're putting education at risk because there's only so many dollars. If you can allocate 18% to healthcare, there's less to spend on education, less to spend on infrastructure, improve the highways, improve the economy, create jobs, all the rest. We're, we're choking development by putting it all into health service delivery. That is another part of the bigger discussion that country just doesn't seem to want to have. It's, it, I, I don't understand it. Maybe someone in the audience could help, but what, what are the arguments against healthcare being a right? Because we are on the other side of this in most of modern societies. So why are we on the side? What are the arguments that people have heard or that, that you have heard on, on this? Well, please, and let other folks, yeah, it's a tough question. It's just to stir the pot a little bit, because Benelli told me to. Uh, I think a major problem with not seeing it as a right is because a lot of people don't see the people, they see the dollar signs. And I think that that is a really big root because insurance companies just keep getting richer and richer and richer. There's actually an episode of Saw, which has a really good example of it. Um, the horror movie, Saw. Um, Thank you for bringing that up. You're welcome. You're welcome. Just trying to keep things fresh. But also, uh, and even if there was, like, if, if there was an ACA repeal, like, then red states would be the ones who were affected the most. Like, Kentucky, for example, would lose a majority, a majority of their citizens would lose health care. Right. So, in, it's just, I don't know, it perplexes me. And I, I would wonder, could, could you speak to, like, the whole uh, pre-existing condition thing? Because under, like, with yeah. what um, Trump Trump's plan would be, it's almost like being a woman itself is a pre-existing condition <laughs> for all of the stuff lodged in there. So I'm just, I get really frustrated. I know you said to leave politics at the door, but I'm not very good at that, as Lane can attest to. So. Yeah, well, let, let's stick to the facts that we know. Um, so the Affordable Care Act mandated that contraception be a covered mandated benefit. Uh, and lots of... Um, Senators and uh, House members uh, really just find this totally unacceptable for reasons that are culturally based, and they're going to do everything to take that mandate apart. So what will that mean? Well, uh, folks might be surprised that even with the passage of the Act, our country has higher maternal mortality than any Western nation. And in this city, we have maternal mortality worse than Sub-Saharan Africa, which is, you know, to me, uh, unfathomable in a town with five medical schools. Right. So um, you could describe it as an attack on women. I, you know, I understand that. Uh, it, it certainly looks that way to policymakers who try to be apolitical and just look at the facts, the mortality rate, the lack of access, rescinding the contraception mandate, this is going to have unbelievable, complicated downstream effects. More unwanted pregnancies, more children for families who cannot care for them, and um, the technical clinical issues of uh, you know, underweight babies and all the costs associated with that. I mean, it's um, incredible how much that will cost. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but no one's rescinding Viagra, so there's a little bit of an issue there. I'm not sure I would draw the direct connection. <laughs> <laughs> I got you, Spinelli. Stir in the pot. You're welcome. Can I ask you a question? No, I thought you had a question. I'm sorry. I did, but now I forget it. Okay. Go ahead. How can we create a sense of envy in the United States population or its politicians of the benefits of overseas health care? How do we create a sense of envy? Envy, yeah. Some sense of question. comparison. Oh, well, well, that's a great question. I, uh, well, I think um, that gets sort of gets to the core of our um, national personality and our sort of sense that we're still in the 
rugged individualism, we're in the covered wagon, heading out west, we've got the right answer. I mean, we have a very parochial worldview, and, you know, to, in a political environment that is anti-immigration, it's awfully hard to promote a conversation that says, you know, well, let's look at what other countries might be doing in a more sophisticated way than us. Uh, that's part of it. Uh, so I think you know, creating envy of the other countries would be almost impossible to do. I, I think um, you know, promoting a, a more detailed education of how healthcare works in other nations, well, that, that might work. Um, a good example of how difficult that is is uh, a little bit of a story. So when President Obama appointed Dr. Don Berwick, a famous uh, pediatrician from Harvard Medical School, who really is a wonderful, thoughtful guy, to be the director of Medicare. Um, he, Dr. Berwick could not get anything done on Capitol Hill and was effectively uh, really emasculated by uh, certain Republican lawmakers. So he was, to connect your question, he drew very public parallels between certain European countries and our country and absolutely found no uh, audience on Capitol Hill willing to listen. In fact, they got angry at his comparisons and he was part of the reason he was uh, essentially forced out of his job. So creating envy, I'm not sure that's the approach to take. Um, probably wouldn't work. What would you? Yeah, I think um, because 50 plus cents of every dollar spent on healthcare in our country comes from where we work, the counterintuitive approach to this vexing problem might be let's get the people who pay the, a lot of money for healthcare, large employers, they need to be much more in this game. Um, it's hard to do, but the National Business Group on Health, the Philadelphia Business Group on Health, these people write the biggest checks for healthcare. They have to get more vocal and demand some of the changes that we're talking about here this evening. I think that might be a better, more fruitful approach. And again, that's just a unique American thing. No other country has health insurance connected to the workplace the etiology of this, you know, goes back to the Second World War, topic for another time. But, but if you could get employers to say, we are not going to take this crap anymore, and here's what we want, that would make a big difference. Um, kind of going off where you're talking how to solve the problem, I think maybe to know how to solve it, it's important to know why. Like you say that other Western countries look at us and they think, like, why is this even an issue for, for you guys? Right. Why is that a thing? Why are they doing so much better? Or why are we just doing horrible? Is there an, even an answer that we know of? Well, sure. Part of why they're doing better, uh, probably the central reasons, two, two reasons, great question. Uh, one is, um, in pretty much every Western nation, social spending exceeds healthcare spending. So maternity leave, meals on wheels, uh, daycare, uh, uh, safety net, uh, job replacement, anything you could label as social spending far outweighs payments to Jefferson Hospital. We have it reversed. So one major lesson we could learn is that all the evidence that I'm aware of people like Elizabeth Bradley and others have shown conclusively, if you spend more on those social services, you will actually have to spend less on healthcare services. So that would be a great take home message and doesn't say anything about insurance, it just is a social issue. But again, you know, we're in a political era, different from when I was here a year ago, holy mackerel, uh, you know, that doesn't even want to have that conversation. And to many elected representatives, social spending is a 
really an anathema to them. Uh, they see it as a handout and all of the bad adjectives attached to it. But it's a great question. If I had to give one specific thing, that would be it. The rate of social spending versus spending on healthcare services, meaning you know stuff we do in the office and house. <clears throat> With all due respect to my colleague, I think his answer is grossly incomplete. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's sitting behind you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to help you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> the, uh, the issue of spending, from my very superficial knowledge, I, I admit, on wellness versus health care, right. and to more specifically align what that social spending is in the, in the arena of wellness, right. so that we never we get less to a need for health care. That realigns the spending and I think reduces it. The, the key component of that, this is the part we like, um, is looking at population health, and, and I would encourage you to really read through these, this interview to understand what population health is. It is dramatically misunderstood, I think, in the general population. And it says everybody gets treated the same and will all devolve to me, and I'm not an individual anymore. That is exactly the opposite of what he's trying to accomplish. Jefferson, yeah, a little ad here. Right. Again, now to have the part, the like this part too. Ten bucks I gave him. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, is we have the first college of population health in the United States, or one of the first. Well, certainly the world, his expertise and sort of uh, reputation is built on this wellness perspective. And I think it's, it's as much an education problem as it is a political problem. If I don't understand, then how do I make good decisions? If I have, if we have the educational foundation and the knowledge base and the curriculum and the experts and we teach really smart people to be experts in this field, I think people will have a more informed decision. They may agree or disagree with this discussion. They may be at any, but they'll be more informed. And I think that's at the heart of the problem. The educators have not done a good job. And we need to change that paradigm. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen with the election of Mr. or Ms. anybody else. It's going to be about people getting educated and being a part of the society that makes people smarter. David's right in that. There's a lot of uncomfortable conversations that we haven't had. And when every time we have them, they shut down. Lots and lots of money in healthcare is spent in the last few weeks of life. And whenever we have that conversation, it's an uncomfortable <coughs> conversation. There are lots of um, more MRIs um, in Philadelphia than there may be in the entire order, the entire country of Canada, for things like backaches that sure. don't need those tests. But yet, people want the test when they want the test. These are pretty uncomfortable. Um, and uh, so, I think Dr. Nash is really good. Yeah, so, um, uh, Maria, you have a question? Yeah, Please. I, it begins with the conversation of, of having universal health care. We're just so far from it that there's really no path of like accomplishing that. But getting health care, period, like, I think, like, when I moved to the States, I did not know. Who to go to to like ask and be like, can I have healthcare? So how how can we shop for healthcare? Because there isn't really a, a way of, of doing that. So uh, let me make sure I understand your question. So where do you get good information to make a healthcare decision? Is that your question? I, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is a little bit off topic for Soria, but great. Really important. <laughs> I, I feel like a lot of people don't don't know. Don't know. And, uh, you know okay. So, and I want to go back to Chancellor Spinelli's comment too. So, um, let's focus on like a report card for healthcare. Right, because okay. there's my confusion with the whole thing. Is yeah. There are so many options yeah. out there, and people don't know where to not to get uh, the best. So, the good news is uh, there is um, a lot more information available today than ever before on the <coughs> outcome of once you're in the system, what's the outcome? And you could go today to uh, cms.gov, so that's the Medicare website, and every hospital in the United States, all 5,000 of them, have to, by law, put in there 
uh, a whole slew of outcomes of care measures that were never available publicly before. In the state of Pennsylvania, uh, we're extra lucky that we have a 30-year commitment, uh, going back to 1986, to a state agency, the Pennsylvania Healthcare Cost Containment Council, it's a bad name, but an amazing group that you pay taxes to support it, that, um, <coughs> excuse me, has even more measures that are publicly available. So if I put my doctor hat on, I always recommend to patients before you go anyplace, go look at the report card. And a lot of it's online. A lot of it is available from other organizations, ProPublica in Washington, Office of the Inspector General. Uh, you could look up online every doctor's malpractice history. So there's a ton of stuff available. Uh, regrettably, that's in my right hand, left hand, regrettably the research evidence on do people look at this information, what do you think the answer is? No. no. So it's really, that's another head scratcher. So maybe they don't know it's available, that sort of thing. Uh, I want to go back to what Chancellor Spinelli was saying, too, because, of course, you know, our, whole, our college is, it, it is the first, so thank you, yes. Um, we're devoted to just thinking of it this way. We want to go upstream and shut the faucet rather than continuing to mop up the floor. I mean, I think that's the visual <laughs> that I like. <laughs> Why don't we tackle school nutrition instead of building yet another bariatric surgical operating room at Jefferson? And the answer to that question is really complicated. It has a lot to do with uh, culture, uh, race, um, economic reward. The economic reward is in building that bariatric operating room. The cultural challenge is getting all messed up with the Philadelphia School District to try to tackle the core problem of poverty that drives childhood obesity. So if I gave you a choice, what would you rather tackle? And you're going to make a heck of a lot more money building that bariatric operating room. I mean, the answer is obvious. So shutting off the faucet is sometimes pretty complicated but it's a hell of a lot smarter than, and less expensive than mopping up that floor. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, but of course, we're, we're, we're in a system that doesn't necessarily agree with this point of view. So I would like to speak a little bit as a Scandinavian oh boy. economist. Pretty amazing. So you ask, what is some of the pushback? Right. Because I read statistics all the time. Sweden has the highest deficit relative to GDP in the world. So there are a lot of people who worry about public spending. So yes, Sweden has you know good um, health care, I guess. Um, my family in Norway, they walk to the store right. down the hill, right. and then they walk back right. with their day's groceries right. every day. Yes. So they're very healthy. They're there's no crap food or junk food. There's, um, you have to exercise if you want to go grocery shopping. So obesity is really not an option. Yep. It's and a huge, huge issue. I mean, no so it's very hard to compare. If you compare a Scandinavian who spends in Lillehammer and uh, you know, walks down the hill to buy their food, they're going to have much better health outcomes. Yep. Plus, gun violence and drugs, it's, much, it's a much different scenario. Totally right. Yeah. So let's look at the numbers. Glad you brought that up. Uh, so 40% um, <clears throat> uh, of all women over 18 in the United States are obese, and 35% of all men. No other country yeah. comes close to that. That is in the top three national health care crisis issues. Um, if you look at behavior, as uh, Chancellor Spinelli was saying, it's even more staggering. So here's a quiz. And if you know the answer, this would be a great quiz. So what percentage of adults in our country, over 18, do all five of these things? Here's the list. Um, don't smoke. 
wear a seatbelt, exercise regularly, have a balanced diet, and are not obese. What percentage do all five? Don't smoke, wear a seatbelt, eat their fruits and vegetables, um, and uh, exercise regularly, and are not obese. And some of this is obviously connected, but we got to do all five things. What percentage of all grown-ups do this? Five. Five percent. It's three percent. Oh, no way. That's because they have vegetables. Three percent. Three percent. Three percent. Right. So, you know, it's amazing. It's still amazing. We're running out of some time, so I want to address one issue before we get a chance to sum up. What place does politics have? Someone has a question right there. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Was the question of that? Go ahead, sir. Um, so I have a question economically. Yeah. When I think the graph where um, you see the GDP percentage for each country yeah. is interesting, but the more interesting part of that is if you look at it split between public and private sector, and if you look at the United States and the percentage that they spend on the public sector, it's pretty comparable to countries that give their constituents comprehensive health care. Um, so I was wondering, do you think that in the United States it's possible that even though we, our doctors are paid more and we have amazing lobbyists that would lobby for um, for for higher payments, um, is it possible to achieve universal health care on an economic level? Well, it's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think it's possible to achieve universal access to care. I don't think it's possible to give everybody all the care that they believe they want and need. Right. That would not be possible. Yeah. Any other questions for us? Go ahead. So, in my opinion, also coming from a foreign country, I feel like the health system here is most capitalized industry. Okay. Um, so we're exploring the idea of the universal health care. So perhaps the return of investment in US healthcare is very low. Wonder if any underlying predictor that causes such a low return of investment could be removed or controlled if we adapt universal healthcare. Uh, well, so it's all about behavior. Right. So an education that could change behavior. So that that's the approach we would have to make a big investment focused on behavior change. Um, if you look at the healthcare industry, though, so it's roughly $3 trillion. Um, experts believe that a trillion of that spending is of no value. So one approach might be, this is getting a little bit clinical, but good way to end. One approach might be, okay, so let's really have a national attack on the trillion dollars of waste and repurpose that money to increase access to care because a lot of very smart people in our field believe that there's plenty of money to make this work. We've just misallocated it. I'm in, personally, I'm in that camp. And the amount of waste is staggering. So if we could react, recognize, evaluate, and reallocate that waste, we, we could make this work. Uh, in the so doing, this is another great question, um, we would, uh, one person's waste is another person's income. And that's the core problem. <laughs> so that's the issue. And, and that is a technical issue about how we're paid, but that is the core, a big, big problem. But lots of smart people believe that the answer to the riddle is reducing the waste, reallocating the trillion dollars, and that would work. Getting to that point would be painful. Any uh, final questions? Well, I'm just like, sure, quick, an easy one. Um, ben Shapiro likes to make the case that when it comes to healthcare, there, you have three points. You have affordability, universality, and quality. And he says you can have two of the three, but not all three. Would you agree with that statement? No, that's a great question. Uh, this is uh, <clears throat> promulgated by my former working professor, Bill Kissick, uh, no longer alive, who coined the term the Iron Triangle, Cost, Quality, and Access. Regrettably, Bill was wrong. 
And here's why. Higher quality care costs less. And this was, he didn't live long enough to see the research evidence to prove beyond the doubt that higher quality care costs less. So I, I really don't believe that the Iron Triangle is, in the 21st century, an appropriate model for us to use to describe the problem. We have enough money to cover everybody and provide effective care. We waste a third of it on stuff that's of no value. And therefore, when you practice high quality care, it actually costs a lot less. And that's a really great question that you brought up. Is there any low-hanging fruit? By that I mean where you can get a reasonably immediate return. Sure. Return within sight, which transfers the waste. Totally. Yeah. So one good example is in this town. Uh, we're lucky because not only do we have you know five medical schools and all the rest, but we have some of the major national organizations like the American Board of Internal Medicine, uh, the American College of Physicians, all right around the you know the Liberty Bell area. So the American College of Physicians and the American Board of Internal Medicine worked together to create a program now almost a decade ago called Choosing Wisely. Detail's not important, but it's a research-based program that encourages doctors and patients to have a conversation about, do you really need this test? And so, so they came up with the term Choosing Wisely. And the research evidence that underlies choosing wisely is all based on reducing waste and having eliminating tests that are of little to no value. If we could just um, more assiduously implement choosing wisely, we would be on the road to reducing a lot of waste and being able to reallocate those resources. In a reasonably quick time, yes. Lots of evidence to support that. But once again, the payment system, so choosing wisely is over here. You can't see this on the podcast, so it's on my left. <laughs> and on my right is, well, somebody's waste is somebody else's income. I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, clinically, it's a little bit hard. But, um, so unnecessary preoperative chest x-rays and electrocardiograms. And we have 20 years of evidence that most of that's of no value. Well, if you were to take that away, you would put a lot of radiology departments and cardiology departments in a world of hurt. Even though we know the science to support it is a very, very modest value. Right. So that's the problem. And Jefferson Health, 13 hospitals, thousands of doctors doing this every day, you could just imagine even within our own family, how much waste there really is. And so uh, that can make your head spin. Well, Dr. Nash, I'd like to thank you so much. Well, for thanks coming. for having me.